Welcome to the Beltway Broadcast, the premier podcast for the workplace learning and talent development professionals of the Association for Talent Development's Metro DC chapter. We've got some great resources in store for you today. Hello, fellow ATDers. I'm Stephanie Hubka, a chapter past president and a member of the Pod Squad here at the Metro DC chapter of ATD. And I'm Leticia Niago, the 2022 president-elect. Hello, I'm Christina Eanes, the vice president of marketing and communications. We also have Helena Hodges, our vice president of finance and operations, as our producer. For this episode, we are interviewing the founder and managing director of Fringe Professional Development, world-renowned speaker, active member of the Forbes Coaches Council, and avid advocate for innovative and organizational professional development, Rachel Bosch. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here speaking to the ATD family. Well, we are thrilled to have you. And today's topic, I have no doubt, is going to be one that get people really excited because this is the kind of thing that everyone has questions about. And before we get in, before we even introduce the topic any further, I'd love it if you would share a little bit about yourself with our listeners today. Absolutely. Uh, so I have a roundabout professional journey, which I think is becoming more and more common these days as people try things out and decide what works and doesn't work for them. So out of college, I actually went to conservatory. So I have a fine arts degree in music theater performance, and I was a professional, professional actress uh, doing musical theater for a while after graduating. And I was temping while I moved to Washington, D.C., and I just got placed in a law firm, and I ended up in their, what is at that time, the recruiting and development uh, group within that firm. And I just sort of happened into that group, was still performing most of the time, and somebody took early retirement and said, you know, do you want to come on full time? We could really use the help. And I thought to myself, well, gosh, what if I get a national tour and I need to go, you know, be on the stage? And uh, uh, one of the counsel at the firm that I was really close with said, you know what, if you get a tour, we'll be so proud of you, but you should at least get some benefits while you're here. So <laughs> go take the full-time job. Uh, and I did. And I'm so glad that I did because I, I'm sort of one of these weirdos where I wasn't fulfilled in the arts. Most people go to the arts from the corporate world. There was something about the arts lifestyle that just didn't quite sit right with me. And being in a more structured organization really did. But I'll tell you, coming up in theater and being so used to character study and watching people and being aware of them really did inform the way that I started moving through that corporate environment. And as I started to get more and more into the training and development side of things has really just informed the work that I've done. So I stayed inside large law firms doing learning and development work for a little over a decade. And then just about five years ago, left and started Fringe focusing primarily on how people communicate at work together and trying to get them to communicate in a way that was more productive for them. Uh, you know, I was one of the people who would always get conflict brought to my doorstep. And so I was very aware of the challenges with communications inside of our organizations. And I just really wanted to help and be on the front lines of solving that. So that's what we do at Fringe every day. 
I feel like we could have an entire additional episode just talking about the performing arts part of your background, which I would love to learn more about. That was a little bit of my study in college, too. But I am not really surprised to hear. I mean, I think it's a fascinating career trajectory, and it totally makes sense to me that you would wind up using some of these skills and especially the character study and character development work to start to understand how people relate, and especially when it comes to conflict. And conflict, of course, is why we are here today. We're going to learn a little bit more about what it's like to manage conflict. And I have to say, especially in the last couple of years, I feel like I've heard more and more conversations about people looking for the best strategies and and tools to really manage what conflict looks like for them. So I would love to hear your take just to kind of kick things off today. Why are so many people experiencing conflict at work? What are some of those main causes of workplace conflict? It's a really interesting question because I agree with you. It's a topic on the rise. Everyone wants to solve it. Um, I think if we want to ask, you know, why is it a topic on the rise? We have to look outside of our office buildings. We have to look at what's happening uh, more broadly in society. And we're really just seeing an uptick in uncivil behavior. And this is sort of how I got on the path of studying conflict and applying it to our work was I started by studying civility and incivility inside of organizations. And we were talking to folks about what they were experiencing, what they were witnessing. And so much of the conversation may have been focused and experienced in the workplace but it was stemming from this broader feeling of being unsettled and uncertain and disrupted. And what we saw, and there's some interesting research in this, when you actually look historically over uh, over patterns of incivility, if you look at like when the incivility in our society spikes, it spikes at times of social unrest. So it's no surprise if you look at what's happening sort of politically, that we're having a spike in incivility and an uncivil behavior. And whenever you have that spike in incivility, you start to see more and more interpersonal conflict because it's this vicious cycle where people engage in uncivil acts, then other people experience or witness that. They feel the negative impact of having been around that and and. I'll just, you know, I sort of nerd out on the research occasionally. I'll just point out you have a very similar reaction when you experience or when you witness an act of incivility. So you don't even have to be bearing the brunt of that act of incivility. If you're just in the room, you have that same sort of uh, emotional reaction. And then you've got that reaction. You're now unsettled. It's more likely that you're going to pop off and be uncivil to somebody else. And we just get in this awful, awful cycle. So I think that's sort of why it's a topic on the rise. And then I'll tell you that when I started studying mediation and conflict, and I know you've had some other folks on talking about mediation negotiation, and uh, that that Harvard program is phenomenal. That's where I went to study the the Center on um, uh, Negotiation at Harvard Law School. So good. And when I was sitting in that training, thinking that I was going to, you know, start a mediation practice, which did end up happening. But when I was thinking that that was going to be the use case, all I could think about, Stephanie, was 
oh my God, I wish I had had this when I was a talent professional. This is what I needed. All, everyone kept bringing those conflicts to my doorstep and I didn't have the tools to solve them. Instead, I solved the problem that was coming to me. I didn't solve the conflict. And then that conflict became a revolving door. That's fascinating. And what an interesting observation to make. And I think you're so right about that. If you're not solving the problem itself, or if you're you're not really getting to the root cause of that, you can't necessarily expect that anything is really going to be resolved for people, whether it's a smaller scale issue or whether it's something that's really big that may be impacting an entire organization. Absolutely. And and that's the issue. Then it just keeps coming back over and over again. And as talent folks, we are trained to solve problems. So it's no surprise. Like no one should listen to this and feel badly like, oh my God, I've been doing the wrong thing. No, you've been doing exactly what you're trained to do. (laughs) You know, you're doing the right thing. But we talk about this a lot at Fringe where we say like, what is happening here? Is it successful problem solving or is it problematic problem solving? And if that problem, whether it's to people or a team or an entire vertical in your organization keeps coming back to you, you're engaging in problematic problem solving. You are solving a problem for people that they should be solving themselves. And you're using those problem solving skills in a way that isn't really advancing anyone in your organization. It's one thing we talk about a lot, you know, and, and I know you've had other folks on who talk about this the strength that you have is not going to be applicable in every area of your life, you know? And so the thing that makes you so good at your job could also be hurting your relationships or hurting your ability to give other people tools to manage things on their own. I feel like there are probably light bulbs going on all over the Metro DC region right now. I mean, that's that's really powerful. And I'd kind of like to dig into some of that too, especially from that side of what it can look like for employees and organizations. What are some of the negative effects of workplace conflict as it might relate to either someone who works for a company or the organization as a whole? Yeah, there are so many, and I'm gonna ref- I, I'm gonna reference a book right now because I think it's really important for your, uh, folks who are listening to really get good resources here. So Christine Pearson and Christine Porath have both done a lot of research around civility in the workplace, and they've got a book, The Cost of Bad Behavior. That book is phenomenal and outlines a lot of what I'm gonna talk about. But I think the most important thing for people to recognize is that people have a stress outcome when they experience or witness stress. Like I was saying earlier, you don't even have to be the one who that conflict is facing if you're in the room. So if you're in a meeting and you've got somebody in that meeting who is just saying, what a stupid question. I can't believe you would ask that. Or why aren't we further along on this? Are you just not doing any work? This is, this is ridiculous. You know, even if that's not facing you, even if you're the, you know, the golden child of that team, you still have a stress outcome. And when we're in that place of stress, our cognition, our creativity, our ability to collaborate all declines. So it's really important for us to know that there's a stress outcome and that stress outcome is going to impact our cognitive abilities. 
I think my favorite statistic on this though, and it's a much smaller per, uh, percentage. I want to say it's around 25% of people who experienced or witnessed incivility in the workplace took it out on clients. So I love it because it's a smaller percentage, right? So like 60% of people experience a stress outcome. So that's much, seems like a bigger number, but then you think about, okay, that's a smaller number, but my gosh, if 25% of your workforce started taking out their anger and their stress on the clients of the organization, what would that look like? It would be horrifying. I was sort of expecting a ripple effect, but that's like a tidal wave. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's huge. It's an incredible statistic to think about. So let me ask you this, because I, I mean, I know I'm still grappling with the magnitude of that statement and just how deep this can run. How can organizations create a workplace culture that would prevent these kinds of conflicts among employees? Well, I mean, I'm obviously going to advocate for teaching conflict management skills. Oh, sure. Absolutely. That's what we're here to talk about today. But you could go in a number of different directions around this. I mean, I think there are adjacent skill sets. Teaching leaders how to engage in psychological safety is huge. You can't teach people to manage conflict if they're afraid to say something. So if we go back to that meeting where you have a leader who's standing there saying, that's such a stupid question. How could you ask that? And I use this example because a really great leader that I worked with once did that in a meeting that I was sitting in actually said to somebody, what a stupid question. I expect that when you come to me, you have answers to things like that. And they didn't realize the impact that that was having on not just the person they said that to, but everyone else. Now, if that leader at that time had understood the core concepts of psychological safety, how to actually build psychological safety in their team, and the fact that it was going to take time to build that, so it was going to need to be an investment over time, that on its face would have really helped that because that tool of building psychological safety allows everyone to be able to actually raise their hand and say, whoa, that doesn't seem like something we should be saying at work. That doesn't seem like something we should be experiencing at work. When you don't have that, you really can't even manage conflict because nobody is empowered to even say that they're experiencing conflict. So I think that's the first thing. When it comes to the conflict management skills, though, I mean, Stephanie, I hate to turn the interview on you, but I'm curious. (laughs) You can. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Like when you're experiencing conflict at work in the past, when you've experienced that, why would you not manage it? Why would you just be like, I'm going to just solve this problem so that I don't get in the middle of this mess? Oh, it's a good question. And it really, it can very much depend, but there could be times where it feels like resolving it can be harder or that it might lead to people looking in your direction or maybe would think less of you for being involved in some way. So I think there are some there's certainly some experiences or some times where it might feel like you you just don't want to put in the effort or you want to make it go away as quickly as possible without getting to the root of it. Oh yeah. 
I think that's one of the most common answers that we hear. Real, I'm not surprised. I, yeah. I'm like, Please just go away. Like, I don't, <laughs> don't want to do it. I don't look right at you. <laughs> it will be so much faster. And I often think it's it's interesting. I um I it's funny. I don't have children. However, I use analogies with children all the time. I feel like it resonates <laughs> with most folks. So I will continue to do this. Um, yeah. if you were to pick up all of your kids' toys at the end of the day and say to them, you know, I needed you to pick these up, but you weren't doing it. So instead I just picked them up. Then the next night when you look to see if your child has put their toys away, well, of course they're not going to because you've solved that for them. So sure, on the first night you saved yourself some time, but on the 10th night you've accumulated all of that effort every single night because now you're creating habits of behavior. And so that's why that's the most common answer is I just want to get this done. I think it's going to be more efficient. We're also obsessed with our efficiency right now. And I'm I'm the worst, right? But sometimes we have to recognize that behaviorally speaking, we need to favor investment over immediate efficiency. And so that's sort of what we're looking for here is can you sit with, and this is one of the core conflict management skills, can you sit with the tension of there being a conflict in your immediate vicinity? And most people organizationally are trained to eliminate that tension, to get rid of it as quickly as possible. And the reality is, conflict is not always bad. I think organizationally, we have had a lot of judgment around certain things. Like, I don't know about you all, but like, I don't know what silence ever did to anyone. And now we've labeled it as awkward. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Silence is not awkward. Silence is where insight comes from. Silence is where we can ask a really good question and let somebody think deeply. Silence is where we have our best ideas. And tension is another area like that. You know, we just decided it's awful. We got to get rid of it. You are a hundred percent right about that. And you also get me thinking about another side to this. So it is, it, it certainly sounds to me, it is so much more healthy to find the right ways to address conflict and to really help to, you know, educate your team and make sure that your team is prepared. But what happens when there is conflict? What happens if conflict has happened? I'd love to hear what tips you might have to share on how we might be able to resolve to resolve it effectively before it can escalate and before it might do things like cause a rift in an organization or in a team. Yeah. So you teed that up so nicely for me, Stephanie. Thank you. Did I? <laughs> yeah. So nicely. So I, you, the language you used, and I tend to be um, a bit of a nitpicker around language, and I, I hope you feel that it's in the service of our conversation. Um, ah, yeah. The, the language you use is the language a lot of people use. How do we resolve this conflict? Yes. We need to resolve this conflict. Do we actually need to resolve the conflict? Or do we need to manage the conflict? Do we need to understand the conflict? I think, you know, thinking about how do we manage, and I I prefer to use manage language here rather than resolve. Resolve makes it feel like we're going to put a nice bow on it and everyone's going to go home with a goodie bag. Like we've resolved <laughs> this. 
But conflict is human and humans are messy. They are messy as hell. And so we need to think about, okay, how do we manage this? And the other issue there with like, okay, we want to move to resolution rather than management is that when we are trying to resolve, we're trying to seek agreement. And the issue with that is that when people are in conflict, they don't agree. So trying to push them to agree is a pointless and futile exercise and is only going to upset them more. What we want to try to do is shift them to understand each other. And when you go into conflict and when you try to manage conflict, if you can shift the people who are engaged in that conflict from trying to agree, trying to seek agreement, to trying to seek understanding, you'll see that immediately you will start to have more productive conversations. I love how you frame that. And I love the word choices. I fully agree. And I I absolutely believe that managing is a better word. And I'm curious to add maybe another layer to some of the context you've shared. What role does self-awareness play when we are managing conflict? Self-awareness, the tool we all think we have, but none of us do. <laughs> it's That's so true. Tasha Yurik, uh, her, in her recent book, she used a statistic that was like most people who were studied in her research thought that they were self-aware and 10 to 15% met the clinical criteria. So it's like, okay, we all think we do. When when we teach self-awareness, I always say to the audience, I say, statistically, you know, a few of you right now are sitting there thinking, no, I got this in the bag. I'm super self-aware. And those are always the people who actually need to pay special attention. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. So I think, you know, self-awareness is huge. And this is, there's so many aspects of self-awareness, right? So you've got Daniel Goleman out there talking about emotional intelligence and being aware of your emotions to better manage them and manage your uh, relationships. Then you've got sort of the bar on sort of center of self-awareness. Then there is a certain amount of self-awareness that interacts and intersects with conflict. So Kilman is the researcher who actually created these different uh, different models of conflict styles. And I think he has a free assessment on his website. So any of your listeners, go check that out. Being aware of self is so important and knowing your own conflict style. So I think what's happening with a lot of talent folks is that they need to manage conflicts that they may be a part of. <laughs> they also need to manage conflicts that they are not a part of. And that comes with a separate bucket of challenges because you need to get people to own their own conflict. Whether you are managing as a neutral with two other people who are in conflict or managing because you're in conflict yourself, knowing your own style is really, really important. The other thing about self-awareness that helps with conflict, besides knowing like, are you the person who's just gonna like run in Dukes up, like you're ready to fight it out, or you're the one hiding under a table somewhere, shaking in the fetal position. Helpful to know. More, more importantly, is knowing how other people experience you. And that's a level of self awareness that I see so many people shying away from still, right? We have every assessment under the sun. And I am a big fan of assessments, behavioral assessments. 
uh, EQ assessments. I love them. I basically am like, do all of them. You can never have enough self-awareness. Like, Just keep taking them. But what we don't tend to focus enough on is uh, the, the sort of behavioral feedback of our colleagues, of the people around us. How are people experiencing you? Because you can have the best of intentions walking in to manage a conflict, but if people think that you're coming in hot, you might think you're like being very gentle. How many times have we done this where we think we're sending an email and we think we're either being extremely gentle and yet the person receives it and they are like, oh my God. This was such a snarky email or the reverse. We think we've come in and we we have made our point in that email. We are going to make sure everything is clear. And then we talk to the person later and it went right over their heads, right? You've got to have that sense of how other people are receiving you. Because if you don't, you could be adding something to that conflict process that you're not aware of. So self-awareness is absolutely huge. I would encourage everyone go take that Kilman assessment, which will focus more on your conflict style. Um, And then also just engage in feedback conversations with your colleagues. If your organization does 360s, I know everyone's scared of those, but that's the magic. I mean, the, the thing about these other assessments, they can be so helpful I love using them, but at the end of the day, it's you telling you about you, which is only so helpful, right? You need other people to tell you about you because that's the stuff you're not as aware of. And that's the magic. I wholeheartedly agree. And you touched on the concept of neutrality. So staying neutral. When managing conflict, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we can remain neutral because it can be so easy to try to go from one side to the other. How do you remain neutral while still demonstrating empathy and support for your colleagues? Yeah. Well, a lot of that comes down to, you know, are you owning the problem? And I think that happens organizationally quite a bit, right? You want to be the neutral, but thinking about what those other people want, whether it's an entire team of people or two people coming to you, what they really want is for you to solve their problem. They right. don't want you to be neutral. So you're already in <laughs> conflicts, right? Yeah. <laughs> They're sitting there like, please solve my problem for me. And you're like, I'm going to be neutral. Okay. So you have to start by just managing that. And that's what I mean when I say sitting with that tension. That tension is you have two people who've come to you. They want you to solve their problem. And your job there is to get them to solve the problem. So sitting in that neutral stance means that you're really making sure that they own the problem. And if you are engaging in a longer term sort of conflict management with those people, it's making sure that they own the process of that. So, you know, I have seen mediators come in and they're sort of like, okay, here's my process. Here are my rules. I really encourage people not to do that. You want to have a loose framework for how you'd like to deal with this conflict, but you really need the two parties to own it. And so you do that through a process we call contracting, where you quite literally ask them, okay, what are you, what are the things that you need in this? to make this work for you. Okay. Well, I need, you know, I need Max to not yell at me. Okay. Max, can you agree to not yell at Kyle? Okay. Kyle says, yes. 
that's going to work. Great. Okay. So we're not going to yell in this conversation anymore. You didn't set that ground rule. They did. They're owning it. So you, if you can get people to start owning small things around the conflict, then you're closer to getting them to actually owning the conflict itself. And I'm so glad that you brought up empathy as well, because you do want to be empathic. You do want both sides to know that you see them, you're here to support them. It's so easy though, to get dragged under into that conflict. So I'll tell you a lot of folks inside organizations that we work with, they get pulled into this because, you know, one person comes and they want to talk about it first. Then the thing you got to do is you have to immediately be like, okay, if you want to work on this, I'm happy to support you. What I'd like to do is have all three of us together. Are you okay with that? And constantly engaging, you hear that again, that permission. Are you okay with this? Does this work for you? You're getting their buy-in. Try not to have these sidebar conversations. Um, you know, in some mediation or negotiation, if folks are familiar with this, you might have heard of this as like shuttle diplomacy, where you're sort of going back and forth. Okay, I'm going to talk to this one. I mean, even if you haven't heard of it, you've definitely done it at some point. Sure. <laughs> I'll go talk to this one, then I'm going to come back, then I'm going to go talk to the other one. And then all of a sudden, you are this ping pong ball going back and forth. Instead, it's bringing people together and making sure everyone's there. Because if you, it's a slippery slope when you're trying to manage conflict for other people, when you're trying to help them through it, being empathic to one person looks like taking sides to the other person. So you always want to make sure that you're, you're keeping people together you're keeping them in the driver's seat and you may be empathic, but you're doing it with everybody there. I love the idea of empowering people to play a role in that rather than just solve the problem for them, empowering them to be part of what that solution looks like. I think that's a great way to, to move forward. And as we, uh, we start wrapping up, I'm also curious you have given us so many ideas and tips and thoughts. Are there any other additional conflict resolution skills that our listeners should consider deploying as we seek to navigate, to manage conflict in our working relationships? Yeah, I think, you know, the first thing really is thinking about like, is this your problem to solve? <laughs> right? We actually have a little sure. chart that's kind of funny and I'll, I'll, I can make sure that it's uh, in our toolkit so that your listeners can, can access this. But it's sort of like, is this your problem to solve? Is it part of your job description? Is it directly involving you? So I think like first is becoming aware of that. Then it really is like learning to practice really deeply, deeply listening to people and knowing the skills that come with that sort of active listening behavior pattern, being able to release judgment, right? Like we didn't even talk about judgment yet, but judgment is a huge part of conflict, especially when you're not involved in the conflict, which I think most people think, oh, judgment. Yeah. I'm in conflict with this person. I'm judging them. I'm thinking about, oh, they shouldn't be doing it this way. When you're the neutral, you also have a lot of judgment. Like, why is that person thinking that? I clearly can see that they're saying the same thing. They just are saying it differently and they don't know how to connect. You're starting to judge. So being able to actively listen to people, to hear the, the deeper meaning of what they're saying, not, not what the words are, but to be able to sort of couple the words with the tone, 
with the body language and get the deeper meaning and really listen without judgment is another really, really important skill set. And, and I know that a lot of talent folks work on that um, and teach that. And so really honing in on that and staying super, super present. Remember, you know, for those of the folks who are listening who are coaches, that skill of, you know, holding space is so challenging. Like I know for myself as a coach, I use so much prefrontal cortex when I'm holding space. I am wiped after a coaching session. Now you're doing it for at least two people, if not more. So it's exhausting. So really staying present with that work is very important. Those are fantastic tips. I am so glad that you mentioned judgment as well. You're right. Such an essential component to understanding what it means to manage conflict. That's great. Rachel, at the end of every episode, we like to ask our guests five rapid fire style questions. Each question requires less than 60 seconds to respond. Are you ready? I don't think so, but I'm going to (laughs) try. You'll do fine. So first, give us one book that all talent development professionals must read and why. Well, Leticia, you will see that I snuck around that question because I dropped in a couple of other books (laughs) earlier. So I'm actually going to give you a book that is not on this topic at all, but it's a new book. It's just recently come out. It's Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally by Emily Ladau. Um, And I think everyone should be reading it. It's phenomenal. Nice. Give us one tool that you recently learned about and immediately started using. Mm, so I, ha- I'm a tool. I- I'm obsessed with tools. We'll say that. Uh, that's putting it nicely. I just started with our team using the the Fellow app, which is a meeting management tool and a one on one tool that like keeps all your one on ones in one place and follows up on people's OKRs so that they know exactly where they are, um, and you can track people's progress on action items. And I'm. And it also integrates into Zoom and and Teams and everything. So I'm obsessed with it. I can't wait to use it more. Hmm. Now tell us, what is the best piece of talent development related advice you have ever been given? The best, and this is also the best piece of professional advice I've ever been given, um, but it certainly applies to talent development, is um, I was working with a colleague. I was preparing for a presentation and I was really, really nervous. It was with a, a new C-suite leader in our organization. And my colleague looked at me very genuinely, very supportive, and just said, Oh, Rachel, she doesn't give an F about you. And I sort of was taken aback at first. But the reality is that was a huge moment for me because I realized nobody's waiting for me to fail. Nobody is waiting for me to screw up. Everyone just wants me to do a good job, right? And no one is thinking about me as much as I am thinking about me. So I actually think that's great advice for anybody in talent development or anyone professionally is just to stay like present, do your best, and don't worry about you know trying to prove anyone else wrong. Everyone wants you to succeed. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for this one. Now, what's one thing that you're excited about that's coming up in our upcoming 2022 year? Oh, my goodness. Um, So in the next year, I think the thing that I'm really excited about is that 
I, we are starting to roll out some software that we've been using internally at our company and it's a helpful feedback tool and we're getting ready to launch our beta user group. And it's just, I'm really excited in the idea of how we can get people communicating better and giving more candid and authentic feedback in organizations on a much larger scale. So I'm very excited for that. Nice. Now, what is the one thing within our talent development industry that you are deeply grateful for right now? I may, maybe I'm going back a little bit to my book recommendation here, but I am so excited to see the conversation around identity really coming to the forefront, really evolving people being much more comfortable talking about aspects of personal identity, including disability, neurodiversity, in addition to race, ethnicity, gender identity. Um, so I'm just really excited to see us taking what we would call a more humanistic approach to our organizations and, and recognizing that people are bringing their whole selves. So I'm excited to see how that conversation continues because it's been moving so quickly. Uh, and so I, I'm excited to see what changes in the next year. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. It's been refreshing to be part of this wave of conversations. I'm really glad you mentioned that. And Rachel, I am so glad that you have been with us today. You bring an energy and passion to a very difficult topic. And I really think you've empowered us to think about how we might be able to manage conflict well in our organizations and with our colleagues. So thank you for that. Oh, you're so welcome. I, I love conflict, just other people's, <laughs> not my own. <laughs> I think uh, many of us have that in common. That's great. Yeah. And of course, a big thank you to my co-hosts as well. No, this was amazing. Thank you so much. I learned a lot. I really enjoyed listening in. This was great. And of course, many thanks to all of you in our community for listening. And before you go, we have a message from our producer, Helena Hodges. Do you want to connect with like-minded talent development professionals? Then go to dcatd.org forward slash COPs to learn more about our independent consultant, instructional design, leadership development, and government communities of practice. Would you like to be even more involved in our wonderful community? Go to dcatd.org and click on volunteer to get started. Mm -hmm.